<clears throat> this is day six of this January 2023 seven-day Rohatsu Seshin. And I'm going to read again today from uh, Song of Mind, a book of talks by uh, Chan Master Sheng Yen. <clears throat> And I'm going to pick up where we left off yesterday. And uh, this section is entitled, One Mind is Still Attached to Self. <clears throat> and uh, he starts with two lines from the song. If one-mindedness is impeded, all dharmas are misunderstood. <clears throat> and then he launches in. He says, you came to this retreat in hopes of improving your practice and clearing your minds through meditation. If you had greater expectations, perhaps I discouraged you when I said that meditating has nothing to do with becoming enlightened. <clears throat> One of you wondered what the point of meditating is if it does not lead to enlightenment. Good question. <clears throat> the answer is that while meditation does not lead to enlightenment, if you do not meditate, you will never be enlightened. It is true that some rare people can get enlightened without practicing. This is called, quote, liberation through wisdom. <clears throat> Shakyamuni Buddha's first disciples became liberated when they heard him expound the Four Noble Truths. And the scriptures speak of people getting enlightened after hearing a few words from the Buddha. Sounds pretty <clears throat> unlikely, doesn't it? However, there is a story I remember either reading or hearing from Roshi Kaplow of two young women at an introductory lecture, lecture uh, that Harada Roshi uh, gave. And when he drew a circle on the board and proclaimed that everything was one, they actually had some sort of Kensho experience. <clears throat> Why couldn't that happen to us? <laughs> we, really, we really never know uh, what precipitates an insight like that what happened in the past, perhaps in, in previous lives, <clears throat> if we can speak of such a thing. I think I said yesterday that meditation, zazen, makes us accident prone. He goes on, while getting enlightened does not depend on meditation, sitting is still useful for calming the mind. This is because our minds are usually so scattered that enlightenment is impossible. What if your mind is not scattered? What if, as one of you told me, you sometimes don't have any thoughts? <clears throat> your awareness of having no thoughts is itself a thought. 
at the very least, you still have a concept of self. Obviously, who is it who has no thoughts? I venture that you have thoughts even when you think you have none, except that you are unaware of them. The Buddha said that in the mind of the ordinary person, no less than 64 thoughts come and go every kasana, which is a fraction of a second. We have so little idea of what's going on under the, under the hood. So many processes <clears throat> going on. Merge into consciousness <clears throat> and then disappear. He says, these thoughts arise because we are influenced by the three poisons of desire, aversion, and ignorance. Greed, anger, and folly. A lot of different translations. Because of them, our minds cannot help but constantly move. Only by transcending the three poisons can the mind stop moving. Now I will say something that may seem like a contradiction to my previous words, but in fact agrees with Nyuto, that is the, uh, the author of the Song of Mind. <clears throat> he says, even if your mind stops for an instant, regardless on what, uh, of what it stops on, that is still an obstruction and you've lost direction. In this condition, no dharmas can be understood. A mind that stops on something, whether internal or external, is not an unmoving mind because it is attached to that something. The mind will always be attached either to an object or to the self. Either case presupposes that a self is present. And as long as a self is present, dharmas cannot be understood. The truth cannot be understood. As long as the mind is attached to an object, it's divided. Even if that object is our sense of stillness, clarity. He says, when the mind stops on external phenomena and internal wandering thoughts, it is still scattered. There is I, you, and it, a subject and its environment. Amidst these diverse phenomena, a self must be present. But even when there is no object for the mind to stop on, when there is no environment and nothing relative to the self, as in deep samadhi or meditative absorption, a sense of self still exists. This is also not enlightenment. could say that we're walking very close at such a time. One more step. 
If the mind stops on anything, there is no enlightenment. However, practitioners, especially beginners, need to hold on to something to collect the mind. This is why we have a method. An object for the mind to attach to, pulling the mind toward one point. There is still attachment, but it is a necessary requirement in the early stages of practice. Um, Yeah, until late, late stages of practice. We need to pull the mind towards one point. Unless he's referring to uh, shikantaza or silent illumination, where we're not focusing on any... uh, object, and that is something that is better done later in practice when the mind is settled. He says, I have often outlined the stages of practice in the following way. We start with a scattered mind and no method. With a method, we can eventually work toward a concentrated mind. With diligence and determination, Concentration will improve until, quite naturally, we evolve to the one-mind state of samadhi. However, in samadhi, the mind still stops on one mind or on the self. We must go beyond one mind to no mind. Here, the mind truly stops on nothing. Only here can one truly be in accordance with all, all dharmas. with diligence and determination really is the key. I'm going to skip ahead a bit. He says, it is said that the Buddha delivers all sentient beings. However, Only those whose causes and conditions are ripe for accepting the Buddha Dharma will benefit. Those whose conditions are not ripe cannot be helped. Perhaps they do not need help, were helped in the past, or will meet the right conditions in the future. For example, 200 years ago, few people in the West knew of Buddha Dharma, and fewer still were willing to accept it. In the last 50 years, many Westerners have begun to study and practice the Dharma and teachers have come to spread it. Causes and conditions for the West and Buddha Dharma are ripening. It seems that they will ripen further, for Westerners appear to have a thirst for the Dharma. Whether they study Chan, Zen, Tibetan, or Theravada Buddhism, this is good. People have different affinities, but it is the same Dharma. It is like a good business that supplies what the people need and want. <clears throat> if causes and conditions change and people lose interest in Buddhism, that is all right too. Change is in the nature of things. If later on no one is interested in my teachings, that is fine. I will be out of a job and I will have more time to meditate. <clears throat> Remember Roshi telling me that once. Can't remember why. It's worried about, you know, what if what if people stop coming? John will get to sit. 
Ching Yen says, the goal of practice is to have nothing in your mind. Only then will you accord with dharmas. Check to see if you still have attachments in your mind. If you cannot empty your mind of attachments instantly, then you must use a method to lessen them. If you must have paintings on the wall of your mind, at least keep them simple and try not to have too many. As time goes on, hopefully, the pictures will get smaller and fewer until there is only one picture, that of the self. If you get to that point, then we can go to the next step. Shingen lays out steps in practice, I think, so that people are sort of oriented to, <clears throat> to the process. But for, for the person who's practicing, thinking about the steps, where am I in this uh, ladder of climbing to some unimaginable goal, uh, is not so helpful. And basically, once we know that what we're doing is our way, then we just need to go. We just need to trust the method, trust the process. That means letting go of where we're at, where we're going to get. Skipping ahead a little bit more, section is called Practicing Without Goals. And uh, the, the verse says, Desiring to purify the mind, there is no mind for effort. It's a little opaque. See what Saint Shengyan says. People here spend the day practicing, trying to purify their minds, yet somehow it does not seem to work. Some of you say, I tell my mind to shut up, but it keeps on talking. Others say, I get more and more discouraged. I have no confidence at this point. I have no control over my mind. Others don't even know how to breathe. Still others cannot even control their bodies, let alone their minds. Is it necessary to go to the bathroom after every round of sitting? I doubt that all of you have bladder problems. is an interesting thing to reflect on. You can get into the habit of, at every keenheen, going out, using the bathroom, because maybe in a while I'm going to need to. Let me do it um, proactively. Get a drink of water. It's pretty wonderful to sit around a sitting and then do a round of keenheen and then sit back down and do another round of sitting. Sometimes we can't, sometimes we need to use the bathroom. Or maybe we're terribly dehydrated and uh, really will do better if we get a little water. But take a look at that. It really helps the more we can make our practice continuous. When you look for little moments of relief, you set a pattern of basically starting and stopping. 
becomes more difficult to do the kind of continuous work that we need to do. Xing Yan says, all these problems begin with the mind not settling down. If you calm your mind and use it to practice, pains or itches won't distract you and you won't have to urinate all the time. <clears throat> you will not look for diversions. Practice alone is sufficient. Some of you have sat well and do not feel like stirring. You do not want anything to disturb your practice. This is using your mind to practice. Sitting well is good, and you can derive great benefit from it, but it is not enough. It is still not Chan. Using your mind to practice still involves the self. You still have attachments. For one thing, you enjoy the peaceful feeling and want it to continue. Self-centeredness is present. Newto says one must purify the mind. <clears throat> it's in italics. One must purify the mind, which means to have no attachments, no desire, and no self-centeredness. If you are working hard with an aim to purify your mind, you will only add more problems. That is not to say that you should not work hard, but that you should not work with a goal in mind. <clears throat> if you have a goal in your mind, you're not really working. You're not really doing this practice. How can we drop everything and keep a goal? He says, furthermore, if you do succeed in purifying the mind, the mind will continue to work hard, but with no attachment. <clears throat> In other words, when you've left, let go of your attachments, your mind will continue with the practice. Practice for the sake of practice, not for wisdom or anything else. Do not seek to lose vexation and attachments. Instead, put your mind on the practice method. Do not fight or oppose wandering thoughts. Just ignore them. If you feel drowsy or lazy, exert yourself and put energy into the practice. Often people spend half their time fighting wandering thoughts. They become tired, become drowsy, and daydream. When they regain their energy, they resume the struggle. They spend the entire retreat battling and sleeping, battling and sleeping. <clears throat> if you are anxious about getting results, you'll spend too much energy and become tired. On the other hand, if you are lax, you will not be successful either. Your practice should be like a fine stream that flows constantly. It should not be like a volcano, dormant one moment, exploding the next. A good practitioner uses minimal energy, but maintains this energy continuously and uninterruptedly staying on the method. This is a, an image that Sheng Yan uh, is, is fond of, practice like a fine stream. <clears throat> it has that element of continuity. When a stream encounters a boulder or some other obstacle, it just goes around it, doesn't get stuck. It's steady not big drama, 
not huffing and panting, just continually looking into this matter, finding our way. Going on, uh, this section is called Cultivating Non-Attachment. Throughout time and space, nothing is illuminated. Nothing is illuminated. This is most profound. And uh, he says, when we start to practice, we can talk about space and time. But when we reach the other shore of wisdom, neither space nor time matters. During retreat, you should progressively isolate yourself first from the outside world, second from people and situations, and third from the previous and succeeding thoughts. In other words, keep your mind in the present moment. This way your sense of space and time will gradually diminish until mind alone exists. With such an attitude, you will surely be successful in practice. Nothing, nothing makes time fly faster than forgetting time. We have a tendency to measure it. Think, okay, how much further do I have to go in this round or in this sashin? How much time do I have left in this life? We're always sort of looking ahead, looking back. Life is right here where there is no time. He says, attachments to time and space create vexations. But if you are fully engaged in practice, time and space are no longer problems. After enlightenment, time and space still exist, but there is no attachment to them. You can help sentient beings without the idea that you are doing so. To be unattached to space and time is thus a profound attainment. Only with no attachments can one truly help others. Isolating yourself on retreat is the way to begin to cultivate such non-attachment. He says, I have told you time and again not to seek enlightenment, but for some the idea is too seductive. Your imagination hooks you and you practice with this intent. But as you try to rid your life of vexations, you get more. As you reach for enlightenment, it eludes you. You have to begin by separating yourself from the external environment. Narrow the environment to yourself and then drop that as well. Skipping ahead, he says, do not pay attention to your body and mind while you practice. If you pay too much attention to your body, you'll be distracted by discomfort. If you pay too much attention to your mind, you'll be disappointed when you cannot control it. Mind and body are always connected. 
When you feel sleepy, you may scold yourself for being lazy, but it may actually be your body needs rest. Also, if you have a scattered mind, your body contributes to it. However, if you practice in the present moment, your mind will become concentrated and your awareness of space, time, and self will lessen. Practicing in the present moment is the key to working when your mind is, is scattered. You feel like you're spinning your wheels and you can't get anywhere. Narrow it down. Maybe you can't actually be in the pure present, but say you're doing breath practice, just make up your mind to focus on this breath, this out-breath, just for that long. And this in-breath. Keep it really simple. There's no need to go further into the future or dig back into the past. If you do that, you'll find things pull together. He says, if you are very sleepy, then you must sleep a while. Pain is is a different story. I guarantee that pain will not kill or injure you unless you unless you know that you have serious physical problems. I suggest that you ignore the pain. Um, I'm going to temper that a little bit. There are some pains that indicate damage is being done. Uh, The classic one, of course, is a stabbing pain, stabbing pain in the knee, for instance. Or you may have some nerve pain or numbness. Make sure that doesn't go on too long. You need to take care of that because you can do damage. But a dull, aching pain in your knees isn't going to hurt you. The question is, what do you do? He says, if you can't ignore it, I suggest that you ignore the pain. If you can't ignore it, then endure it. Watch pain with an objective mind, and it will transform into coolness. If you detach from the previous thought and stay in the present moment, you will not see, hear, or feel anything. You won't even feel that you exist let alone the pain in your legs. If you don't exist, how can pain? One of the lessons of Sashin, of any kind of extended sitting practice, is to know a lot more about the nature of pain in an experiential way. So much of our difficulty is due to the mind, is due to our aversion, wanting it to go away. Once we settle that it's not going to go away, we're going to sit still for the entire length of the round, then the question is, can we let go of that insistence that things be the way we want them to be? Can we just bring some curiosity to the process? One, maybe the classic way of working with pain is simply to concentrate more fully, get totally into the practice, and that will work. That will make the pain recede. So it's there, maybe, but it's in the background. It's not a problem. 
Roshi Kaplow used to urge me to just put my mind right in the knee or wherever the pain was. Just breathe moo. And that works. That works too. Didn't work as well as I wanted, but it works. <clears throat> Further on, he says, the essence of Buddhism is wisdom and compassion. So Buddhists know they should be, be compassionate, but inevitably, someone or something irritates them and they lose sight of this teaching. In ordinary people, wisdom is shallow and limited, and to be compassionate all the time is impossible. I know a monk who is outwardly nice to everyone, but who confessed to me that since he can't show his anger, he finds release in privately cutting up his clothes and books. <laughs> where, where does he find these guys? <laughs> this isn't too bad. At least he doesn't beat himself. Still, his wisdom and compassion are not deep. <clears throat> we are human, so we get angry. To cope better when you feel angry, relax your abdomen and then tell yourself, okay, now you can be angry. It's more difficult to be angry once you are relaxed. The abdomen tightens when one is angry. <clears throat> That's why awareness of the body is so helpful when anger is coming on. It always shows up in tension somewhere. If you're not aware of the tension and you're just focused on the anger, then you've lost control. Now you're doing damage. If not to others, then certainly to yourself. <clears throat> he says, a prerequisite to progress on the path is to realize that you are ignorant. The more you think you know, the more vexations you have. Knowing the details, but not the underlying principles, you get lost in a sea of facts. A Brahmin in Shakyamuni Buddha's time thought he knew everything and wanted to debate the Buddha. First, he tied his head and stomach with copper bands. When Shakyamuni asked what the bands were for, he said, I have so much knowledge, I must bind my head and stomach so they don't explode. <laughs> Where does the Buddha meet these guys? <laughs> then he challenged the Buddha. If you ask a question I cannot answer, I'll be your disciple. If you lose, then you'll be my disciple. The Buddha said, I have no questions to ask. The Brahmin said, how can we debate if we have no topic? The Buddha replied, as long as something can be debated, it can be refuted by clever argument. But since I have nothing to debate, you cannot defeat me. You, on the other hand, have so many ideas, it will be easy to defeat you. <clears throat> Those who have no understanding of Buddha Dharma should study its concepts and principles. However, those who have only an intellectual understanding are also encouraged to practice. And for those who have been successful on the path, there is no such thing as Buddha Dharma. They might speak about it, but it is only in response to those who don't know about it. Again, 
This is this brings to mind the Buddha's image of the Dharma as a raft to carry us across to the other shore. Once you've gone across, you put the you leave the raft on the shore and go forward. People who like to read Buddhist literature usually try to find connections between the words and their own experiences. Some people turn to books for guidance instead of finding a qualified teacher. They'll remain ignorant. This explains Yuto's statement, knowing dharmas is not knowing. Not knowing is knowing the essential reminds me of, of a story about a boss who needed an, an assistant. <clears throat> Ten people applied for the job, and they all did well on the written test. At the interviews, all but one boasted of what they knew, but the last one said he didn't know anything. He said he was willing to learn, to ask questions, and to check with the boss if he had any difficulty. He was the one who was hired. <clears throat> I saw something recently. Uh, someone had some cards made up, and... Uh, at job interviews, when he was asked the inevitable question, what is your main strength, <clears throat> he would pull the card out and it would say, my ability to anticipate. <laughs> In the same way, it is best if you come to practice without previous knowledge. Begin as if you had no past. Those who think they know everything cannot move forward. On the other hand, those who have tremendous wisdom sometimes appear stupid. <clears throat> Any kind of success that we have in our practice is a potential obstacle. It's definitely the case that people who've been passed on their first koan often have trouble. They can't let go of their attainment. so helpful to shed the burden of knowledge and attainment. When I uh, <clears throat> when I got into serious enough trouble with drinking that I landed in Alcoholics Anonymous I went in that direction. That changed. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing like being humbled to realize that, okay, <clears throat> I'm not better than other people. It's a saying in AA, you're just a garden variety drunk. We all think we're special. <clears throat> Somebody who doesn't think they're special, that person is pretty special. It's pretty unusual. We all got to be either the best or the worst. The rooms of AA are filled with, uh, many of them, 
with signs on the wall with various slogans. Um, one day at a time, of course, is the classic. <clears throat> you could be critical and say, what a whole day, one split second at a time. But if you're planning your life out or you've got things to do, taking it one day at a time can really be helpful. It, it needs to be appropriate to whatever the task at hand is. If you're sitting on the mat, probably one day at a time isn't the best way to frame it. <clears throat> at the end of some of the uh, meetings I used to go to, uh, they would gather in a circle and all together say, it works if you work it, so work it. And that could be our motto here. This practice works if you work it. Letting go of your thoughts, letting go of your goals, works if you do it. You have to do it. To have faith that that's going to work. You have to understand that despair and panic are not our friends. As Anthony DeMello said, need to make the discovery that you're you, just as you are, everything you need to do this practice. And it's not a practice about getting something. Everything turns around when our, when our direction becomes, what can I give? Starting with giving our attention being willing to give up our thoughts, being okay with being who we are and how we are, giving up our insistence that things go our way, that they change at our, at our timetable. Can't be truly determined as long as we're making demands. The joy of practice is in surrender. It's in giving ourselves completely to this work. We don't need to hold on to any accomplishments. We don't need to impress anyone. right here, settling in. Steadily, steadily making our way. Ups and downs, no matter. Failure, no matter. Try again. Keep trying. Fail again. Fail better.
stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs>